Amen. Let's pray one more time together. Ask the Lord to bless His Word among us. Give us His Spirit. Father, thank You so much for this opportunity today. What a gracious, merciful, all-benevolent gift it is to be able to stand in the presence of Your people and in Your church, underneath Your Word, and to speak forth Your truth. We ask that Your Spirit would be pleased to dwell among us, to flow through us, Lord, and to bless His Word. And Lord, we pray that this Word would just be so moving in our hearts, Lord, that it would have a distinct impact in our mind today that we would be moved by Scripture today. That we would feel its weight. That we would be brought to sobriety because of its truth. That we would mourn because of the lost. That we would rejoice because of our hope. And that we would live in a way that's pleasing to you because of our calling. Pray all these things in the marvelous name of Jesus. Amen. Then the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking to me and saying, Go, take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. And so I went to the angel, telling him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little book out of the angel's hand and I ate it. And in my mouth it was sweet as honey and When I had eaten it, my stomach had become bitter. And they said to me, that is, the host of heaven, you must prophesy again and again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. John, Revelation chapter 10. That is the nature of apocalyptic revelation. Apocalyptic literature is made to do two things to us. Number one, we are made to feel the weight, the heaviness, the bitterness of the truth of judgment. And that part of God's revelation and eschatology is not supposed to be celebratory and produce in us this sort of gleeful joy, but it is to make us bitter and mournful and broken. But it is also sweet because we know that the last word is God's word. We know that the last note that is struck is a note of triumph and joy and heavenly celebration. We are looking at one of the most profound 
passages of Scripture in Thessalonians because it deals not just with eschatology, but with a catchphrase that is known to us as the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord has a long legacy of prophetic, revelatory content. And when we come here to Thessalonians, we are being alerted that something tectonic is taking place in Revelation. There is some sort of shift that has transpired in the day of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 13 says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It has come as destruction from the Almighty. Now, that's Isaiah speaking about the day of the Lord. And as a matter of fact, that's the first time the word, the day of the Lord, or the phrase, is used in all of Scripture. And the day of the Lord means this is the day of judgment. But here, in Thessalonians, that day of the Lord theology, brothers and sisters, is now taken up into its final messianic climax. And we see it for what it really is. But I want you to understand the day of the Lord. I want you to understand that biblically speaking, like I said, there is this long tradition, there is this long legacy of apocalyptic theology that is connected to this awesome day of the Lord. It is a multi, uh, or what we could call a multi-horizon day. In other words, there's one horizon, and that is the historical horizon of the day of the Lord that had application during the time of Israel. During, let's say right here in Isaiah 13, verse 6, it had an impact upon Isaiah, upon Israel, there in that century, the 7th century B.C., before Christ. But it also had a more distant prophetic horizon that looked forward into the distant future of biblical prophecy. Sometimes the day of the Lord functions like this. It is the day that is associated with the people that God is going to judge. And so it is called, in Isaiah 9, the day of Midian. In Ezekiel 9, or, uh, 30, verse 9, it is called the day of Egypt. Because in other words, this is when God's judgment came upon a specific people. So there is a germane continuity. There is an organic continuity between the day of the Lord as manifested, localized, temporally expressed through the judgment of Egypt, Midian, Babylon, Persia, Etc., etc. J.B. Caird is an Old Testament scholar about a generation ago. He wrote a superb encyclopedic entry to the day of the Lord, and he reminds us of this to get us to give us another perspective of the many facets and different characteristics of this day. He says, A lot of times the day of the Lord is named after what God is going to do. Or what was going to happen. And so in Ezekiel 7, it is called the day of trouble. 
in Hosea 1, it is called the day of rebuke. In Isaiah 10, it is called the day of punishment. In Isaiah 63, it is called the day of vengeance. In Jeremiah 51, it is called the day of doom. In Joel chapter 2, it is called the day of darkness. And in Zephaniah 2, it is called the day of the Lord's anger or wrath. The New Testament identifies this redemptive historical uh, nature of the day of the Lord and it now sees it fulfilled in the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's exactly what Paul is talking about here. In other words, the day of the Lord is none other than the day of the second advent of Jesus Christ. That is the ultimate, fullest expression of that day. That is the terrible, awesome day of the Lord. And there are no days of the Lord after it. That's it. That's what, um, that's what made John's mouth sweet and his stomach bitter. He saw that this awesome parousia, the coming of Christ in the clouds of judgment, was the definitive judgment on planet earth. And there was nothing left after that in terms of judgment. God poured out His wrath. And that's what John saw. Think of it. Your stomach would be bitter too. And that's why the heavenly host... I don't know if you saw that in the text. I was just marveling at that because talk to the angel, he talked to the angel, talk to me, and then the angel said this. And then at the end of the verse, without any sort of introduction, it says, and they said... Almost as if there was a rousing cry surrounding John, a heavenly angelic cry of the heavenly host corporately now saying, you must prophesy. It's hard. It's going to be hard to get it out of your mouth, but you've got to get it out of your mouth. The weight of that that John must have felt. No wonder when God appears like this in the Old Testament and in other places, people fall down like dead. Because you can't take it. You can't physically withstand the mental weight and the gravity of what you are saying and what is about to happen. Do you not understand what the day of the Lord means? It means that everyone around us, brothers and sisters, is walking around in la-la land. It's insanity if you think about it. If you let your mind go there for a minute. Everybody's just hunky-dory going about their day, Disneyland existence over here in the West and in the world. But we're pretty bad over here in the West. We got Disneyland over here. This is Paul's focus. He shifts now away from the hope that believers have at death and now focusing on the fate of the wicked. That's the way that he shifts the thought. He's going to remind the Thessalonians that the day of the Lord, while we have hope in that day, while we have hope in Christ's return, for the wicked it will be a day of doom. It will be a day of anguish. It will be a day of peril. And so what he's going to say here in chapter 5, you know, I was tempted to go verses 1 through 11, but I said absolutely not. I can't do that. I can't do it. Verses 1 to 3 is 
explaining to us the fate of the wicked, verses 4 to 7, is telling us that the church is to be sober. And in verse 8, we are to be armed with the armor of God. We be equipped with the armor of God. In verses 9 through 11, we are also to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ. That is what distinguishes us from the world. The first three verses here focus on the day of the Lord and its impact that it will have on the world of unbelief. This is why it is the awful, terrible day of the Lord that is prophesied all over the Old Testament and Jesus Himself prophesied about it. Three things are being said here in Paul's exposition of these three verses here. It is an anticipation of the day of the Lord. It is a description of the circumstances surrounding the day of the Lord. And it is the destruction that accompanies the day of the Lord. So number one is the anticipation. The anticipation. In anticipating the day of the Lord, I want you to notice what Paul does here. He uses a phrase that is only used one other place in Scripture. Now, as to the times and epochs, or maybe you have a different translation to say times and seasons... Uh, this is uh, Paul using uh, specific Greek words that mean, means that what he's thinking of here is long distances of time, not small cr- chronological increments of time. He's thinking of vast categories of time, okay? And what he's saying here is that you have no need of anyone to be, anything to be written to you for you yourselves know full well. Now, stop there for a second and look at Acts chapter 1 because there is the only other time that times and epics or times and seasons are used and they're used by Jesus. They're found on the lips of Jesus. Remember, this is after the resurrection, just prior to the ascension. Jesus says, so when they had come together, or Luke here says, they, were, they asked him, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel. And he said to them, it is not for you to know times and epochs which the Father has fixed in his own authority. The reason why the Thessalonians have no need for anyone or for anything to be written to them is because the times and the epics or the seasons are something that specify the precise timing of the return of Christ. Something Paul did not know, something the church could not know, and something God does not reveal to us. Therefore, it is... Uh, It is contentment to some degree that we must have when it comes to certain eschatological events. We have to be content with not knowing certain things. Now, there's one camp that would say, well, no, the second coming is easy to know when it happens. All you need to do is just calculate the seven-year tribulation period, and at the end of that seven-year tribulation period, or in the middle of that seven years, the abomination of desolation, well, then after that, you know it's only about three and a half years before Christ returns. There's only one problem with that that doesn't square with what Jesus said. Look at Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 36. Uh, Jesus himself made it crystal clear that in terms of the parousia, no one knows. No one knows. He says, but of that day and hour, Matthew 24, 36, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, that's the Son in his earthly humanity, limited as it was in terms of its uh, drawing from his divine Nature, and I know that opens up a whole other can of worms. Not this sermon, okay? <laughs> Got to wait for another sermon on that one. 
He says, but the Father alone, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. That's important. Because that connects us to precisely what Paul is talking about here in Thessalonians. That what we're talking about is that it will be like the days of Noah. It will be when people are, are drinking and eating and, 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 and they're just given in marriage and people will be merry and people will be just be going about their business like everything is just fine. This corresponds, chapter 5 here, corresponds with the second letter, chapter 2, the coming there. That coming corresponds with Second Peter, chapter 3, where the apostle makes it crystal clear that the coming, which the people mock, that that coming also will be just like the days of Noah. It's all the same day. And so what, Peter, what Paul is saying here is that in terms of times and epochs, you have no need for anybody, anything to write anything more about that time because they already knew what they could know about it. Um, most commentators say that what Paul is referring to here specifically is that while he was with them in his first visit, he had given them an orthodox understanding of this day, the day of the Lord. Now, that, that is going to be challenged. Turn over to the next letter, chapter 2. By the time of the writing of 2 Thessalonians, it seems as if this understanding that the church had of eschatology precisely regarding the day of the Lord, the parousia, the return of Christ, by the time the second letter is written, that understanding, that orthodox apostolic tradition was challenged. Look at verse, well, I guess we can start in verse 1. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. This is every, that right there is everything that Paul covered in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, where he begins in verse uh, 13, going all the way to chapter 5, where we're at now. That you not be quickly shaken. See, this is a d- disturbing thing going on here. From your composure and be disturbed either by a spirit, which again, I said, probably a reference to a false teacher, or a message, or a letter, as if from us. So somebody was posing with apostolic authority to be writing to this church, but they weren't really truly delegates of the apostles. These were false. And uh, he says, what's the content of their message? To the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. So it's almost as if... By the time he writes a second letter, what happens is for through whatever influence, whether writings that they were receiving or, or, or false teachers that were creeping into the assembly somehow or influencing them, that what they came away with was a hardcore preterism. Preterism is just uh, the word that means historical. In other words, what they're saying is that everything eschatologically has already been fulfilled in some spiritual way, so there's nothing physical, literal to look forward to. Uh, that's, uh, that's a really dangerous uh, eschatology. In the early church, some people continued that line of thinking, and preterism eventually became condemned by the councils as heresy because they believed in a spiritual resurrection, not a literal resurrection. Spiritual, and that that's all that we could hope for. That's wrong. So, from anticipating the day of the Lord 
to the circumstances surrounding the day of the Lord. Now, this is, this is going to be largely expanded in verses 4 through 6. But right here, he does give us the circumstance, we can call the circumstances of the day of the Lord. Look at with me. It says, it says, not only do they not need to know or have anything written about the day of the Lord. It says, for you yourselves know full well, we'll come back to that, that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. And I know it's like I can't even, especially some of you older Christians in here, I can't even say the words thief in the night without you going back to the 60s and 70s and uh, the films that were uh, released and the books that were written back then, uh, you know, back in the Hal Lindsey heydays. Uh, but we're still here, so <laughs> so this 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 day of the Lord, this uh, thief in the night component is just simply trying to stress to us that it will be sudden, that it will be a surprise, that it will ca- catch people off guard. Now, it comes like a thief for who? Well, it comes like a thief for those, if you look at the text, it comes like a thief for those that are asleep spiritually, that are in darkness spiritually, that operate at night, that are drunk, which is just code. Uh, why did he choose the word drunk? Well, it's just basically here operating as code for living a licentious, godless life, spiritually unfit, and their life reflects it. The parousia will be a thief only to those who are going about their merry way thinking that everything's just going to, everything's just fine. Everything will go on as it always will be uninterrupted with no concern to the future, especially no concern with what God has said. This should stagger us. Isn't it staggering that although everything in the world around us testifies that life is not just simply going to keep going, we still think that way. And, and people think that way. It's like it doesn't matter how much, you know, the world and the chaos around us and the sin around us testifies to us in every way. I mean, whether individually, just within yourself. Disease. Corruption. Whether you're thinking individually or globally. I mean, just, just the other day I saw a headline, you know, tensions with North Korea on the rise again. (laughs) It's like, man, is this world on a roller coaster. But whatever it is, everything around us testifies that we are transient, that we are temporal, that we are frail, that life is fragile. This is why it's a self-delusion. This self-delusion is really the essence of what it means to be in darkness. In the sphere of sin, in other words. And that is why the day of the Lord will overtake them. Look at, you can see it in the text. Look with me down, jump down to, um, um, well, let's see here. Verse 4, next verse. You brethren are not in darkness. That means that you are not in the sphere of unbelief. He says, you're not in darkness. That the day would overtake you like a thief. So the thief component really just means for anyone that is not spiritually aware, spiritually vigilant, spiritually equipped, spiritually ready for the judgment of the day of the Lord. That's why it's like a thief in the night. Turn back to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 36 
Listen to the way that Jesus speaks about this. This is perfect congruence with Paul. They speak in tandem. He says in verse 37, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For, as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day, of the, of the, of Noah, the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. They, they did not understand. They had knowledge of it. They saw the ark being built. They heard even the semblance of Noah's message because he was a preacher of righteousness. But they didn't understand because they were in darkness. I mean, think about it. We can articulate to people all day long until we're blue in the face. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. You don't lack information. You lack illumination, which is only something that can come through the Spirit of God. And it says, they didn't understand. So will the coming. There's our key word, parousia. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. And one will be taken and one will be left. That's not, that's not the rapture the way that you saw it in the movies. That, that's, that's just what Jesus is talking about there is a separation. This is the great and final judgment. This is a separation between the sheep and the goats, the unbeliever and the believer, the righteous and the wicked, which transpires at the second coming. The reason why Paul tells them that they don't need any additional information is because unlike the world, they do have an understanding. Matter of fact, look at the words that that Paul uses there uh, back in Thessalonians. They understood this well. Uh, Matter of fact, English translations here are not that helpful. Whether you have an NASB, not infallible, right? The NASB is not the original. Paul did not write the NASB. I know some King James guys would give me a run for my money at this point, but he didn't write King James either. He didn't write the ESV. He didn't write the NASB. He didn't write any English translation. He wrote the Greek text. And in the Greek text, when Paul tells them, for you yourselves know full well, um, or uh, the ESV says, fully aware. Uh, it's, it's interesting because the Greek word that he uses here, akribos, the Greek term literally means accuracy. So what he's saying is the knowledge that you have is accurate. In other words, they have a proper orthodox understanding of the day of the Lord. They have the illumination that the world does not have. I turn now to 2 Peter chapter 3. Another parallel passage to this, another parallel passage to Matthew 24, 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning of verse 3, really gets into these circumstances, if you would. He says, know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. Notice the motivation. Don't, don't for a second give in to the idea that what the source of Richard Dawkins' mocking of the gospel and of the return of Christ is some sophisticated, philosophical, scientific intellectualism. It's not. You know what drives him? lusts. 
He wants His own way. He wants His own thing. He wants to do what He wants to do and He doesn't want anybody telling Him not to do it. So don't be deceived that these people that purport to be and, and, and admittedly very smart, brilliant. It's not an IQ problem. Stephen Hawking was not an atheist because he was so brilliant. He was an atheist because he was so wicked. He says here, saying, where is the promise of his coming? That's important. Because what is the issue at stake? The issue at stake here is the coming of the Lord. Right? And the coming of the Lord is answered by Peter teaching on the day of the Lord, which is exactly what Paul's teaching about in Thessalonians. He says, For even since the fathers have fallen asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. We will hear this until the second coming comes. People say, oh, we're just going on. I mean, you know, it's been forever and, you know, it's just nothing seems to be changing. Everything just remains the same. For when they maintain this, here it is there, it escapes their notice. <laughs> what a brilliant way of saying that, right? Just, a, just an interesting phrase there. But he says that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. It's just talking about the different way that the waters were separated in the original creation. But anyway, he says, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens are and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. That's exactly what Paul is talking about here. And what about this destruction? Well, look at what Paul says. In terms of the circumstances, now we move to the destruction of the day of the Lord. But look at what he says. He says, it'll come like a thief in the night, yes, And while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. The day of the Lord is going to be the day of judgment, the day of destruction. Uh, The Bible calls it the day of wrath in Romans chapter 2. The day when God returns to judge the living and the dead. Paul's words are meant to draw us into this dramatic, apocalyptic understanding of the day of the Lord where all of man's greatest fears will be realized, at least those who are not ready. Jesus will return at a time when people say, peace and safety. Peace and safety probably alludes to the Old Testament where in Israel's time the rulers promised the people a superficial peace when there was no true peace because there was no true righteousness. There was no true righteousness. So God didn't accept the peace. Isn't that remarkable? It could seem as if there's peace. There's no war. Maybe treaties are made. Maybe there's a, uh, you know, maybe the United Nations is going to figure out a way, you know, led by some mysterious, you know, figure. Maybe in a way to get everybody to get along for a while. And people can, you can just hear people chanting, peace and safety. We've arrived. Technology has allowed us to produce this peace, this safety. And we did it on our own and we don't need anything else. But because the world is still unrighteous, it is a false peace. 
I know you guys want me to go right to the Antichrist and talk about all that stuff. You know, seeker-sensitive churches keep you coming back with programs and rock-climbing walls and video games. I keep coming, keep you coming back by saying, well, no, that's Second Thessalonians, so you got to keep coming. <laughs> you got to come back. The world is going to be completely deceived about this. Total destruction, total surprise. The world is in an antichrist delusion, and it will get worse. So, turn to Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Without debating all the precise things regarding antichrist and all of that, we know something for sure. That antichrist means deception. In verse 9 it says, Those whose coming is in according with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all deception of wickedness, for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, so much for the moralist. Do you know what I mean by that? So much for the person that says, I love the truth. I go to church. My Christians are parents, and I'm around that. And that should be good enough. No, that doesn't make you a lover of the truth. You can't fake loving the truth, right? You can fake all kinds of external conformity to the truth. You can obey. You can be obedient. You can show up. You can even participate in a prayer. But if you do not have affection for the truth, then your love of the truth is not love at all. And therefore, he says, for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe in the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. This is what I mean, that the world will be in an antichrist deception, a complete and totally deceived. There will be in a delusional sort of ease, a sleepy, spiritual, inebriated state. They will be under satanic spell. They will be bewitched by the spirit of the age, the spirit of Antichrist, which above everything results in a disregard for God's word, a disregard for God's wrath, a disregard for the gospel of God. This is why Jesus' return will be sudden. It will be a sudden crisis, Paul says, like when a woman is in labor pains. You know what that's like. Ladies, if you've had a child, you know what Paul's talking about here. I mean, I remember when my wife went into labor pains. I'll never forget it. That night, it's like, you know, I forgot what time it was, but it was, you know, it was, it was evident something's wrong. <laughs> you know, all of a sudden, she felt something in her stomach. It was distinct. It was like nothing she'd ever felt. She knew the time had come, and it was irreversible. And so... Like a woman with child, you're going to feel labor pains and they will not escape. It's inevitable. The baby will come. You know, you go through all this stuff, getting ready for a child. You go through all these classes and stuff like that. And, you know, I, I, you know, I did it. You know what I'm saying? I did it. But, but deep down inside, I thought, you know, I don't know. Baby's going to come, right? I mean, (laughs) you're going to show up. I mean, she's going to show up one way or another. I mean, it's going to happen. And I don't know that it's going to be because of the 50,000 different techniques we're learning here. I just think you're going to have a baby, Trish. And I was right. 
<laughs> a woman who goes into labor goes from one state to the next almost immediately. You could be just going along marvelously. Eating, sleeping, laughing, walking, talking. And in a moment's notice, you begin to feel something. There's a sharp, distinct cramping, a pain in your stomach. And it's not like anything else that you've ever felt. And you know it's time. Jesus' return, the day of the Lord, is not only sudden, but it will be completely overwhelming, completely overpowering, like a woman with child that is buckled to her knees because of the pain. They will not be able to withstand. And that's why Paul says, they will not escape. And Paul actually uses a double negation here. Ooh, may, he says. Double negation meaning absolutely not. No, never, no, not. In no way will they escape. There is no escaping it. Turn to Revelation chapter 6 with me. The phrase peace and safety is really a slogan that was operative in Paul's day. And it probably was rooted in political pride of some sort. And you can find, matter of fact, you can find the phrase peace and safety. You can find the phrase in, in the ancient world and in Rome, whether on coins or monuments or literature. The phrase claimed social peace and social safety through the power of the state. They thought there was, because of whatever institutions, whatever governments, whatever politicians, whatever army or military force, whatever geopolitical maneuvers were going on, or whatever the the economic status in that day, they thought all was well. But in a sense of security, will prove to be worthless in the end. Look at Revelation 6.12. I looked when he broke the sixth seal and There was a great earthquake. An earthquake will make you understand really quick that not everything is right in the world. I've been in big earthquakes. I used to live in Southern California, and I've been in earthquakes so big threw me out of the bed. I felt big earthquakes. It's terrible. You begin to lose your grip on everything. When the house and the earth is shaking and there's nothing that you can do, Oh man, I'll tell you what, you will cry out to God. I remember as a teenager, the Whittier earthquake, crying out to God as a pagan, heathen, unbelieving you know, kid. Please God, make it stop. Well, who else can make it stop? Yeah. The sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its upright, uh, unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up. And every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth, the great men, the commanders, the rich, And the strong, the doomsday preppers, brothers and sisters. I watched a a program on doomsday preppers. They're building these like underground hotels. 
that they're going to just, you know, when the apocalypse comes, they're going to flee the zombie apocalypse and survive underground somewhere. It's folly. And when Christ returns, it doesn't matter if you're in a hole in the ground because look what it says. It says every slave, every free man, they hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountain. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? This is what I mean. Sweet to the mouth, bitter to the stomach, gravity, weight. That's what the day of the Lord does. And when He says... Fall, you know, crying out to the rocks and the mountains to fall on us. There, John is pulling from the prophets. Nobody spoke about the day of the Lord with greater graphic description than the prophets. I mean to show you that. Hosea chapter 10 is where he got that. And in Abadiah, you see the same thing. That it is a day of judgment. Absolutely terrible. But it's... Also a day of salvation. You know, you know that for a fact because if you jump down to the end of this section, look at verse 11. Don't forget, as weighty, as, as terrible, as, as awful as the judgment will be, don't forget what this whole pericope, this whole paragraph is supposed to do for us. Verse 11, therefore, encourage one another. And the reason why we can encourage one another is because the day of the Lord is not just judgment. But it's also redemption. It's also vindication. Abadiah, verse 15 says, For the day of the Lord draws near on all nations. As you have done... It will be done to you. In other words, to the evil nations. Your dealings will be returned back on your head. Does that sound like revenge? Yeah. That's revenge. What does Paul tell us in Romans chapter 12? Don't seek revenge. Why? Because revenge is wrong? No. Because revenge is not your place. He says, leave room for the vengeance of God. God's vengeance will be the ultimate revenge on a persecuting world that hates God, hates the church, hates His people. I was so angry. I was watching a... um, I was watching many years ago news, a homosexual rally in Southern California. And the only person that was protesting the rally was this elderly woman, she appeared to be in her 80s at least, could barely hold her sign. Okay, if you don't like, okay, whatever. God bless her. First of all. She had a cross, I think it made out of cardboard or something, and she was surrounded by this mob of men, big, strong, young, old, and they proceeded to rip this cross out of her hands, almost throwing her to the ground and stomping on it, I got so angry. I literally almost, you know, 
oh man, I got really angry. <laughs> and I thought, that sense of indignation that I have for that, and this is a sinful situation. Imagine God, what He sees in the death of His saints, what He sees when His people are persecuted all around the globe. He sees it all together and through all time. Do you know what the Catholic Church did during the Reformation? They killed an estimated eight to 10,000 Reformed pastors. Burned them at the stake or some other method of torture. For what? Because they wanted the Bible in their own hand, in their own language, and they wanted to teach it to people. And so they were burned to death by the thousands. How does God feel about that? All the wickedness that you did will be returned on your head. Because just as you drank of the holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and become as if they never had existed. God's going to completely wipe out all the wicked from the world. Staggering. They will not escape. To give even more graphic description of this, turn to Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah uses imagery to help us to understand what's going to be the emotion in that hour. Wail for the day of the Lord is near and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp. Every man's heart will melt They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment. Their faces will be aflame. You see that? Oh, irony of ironies. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel and fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation, and He will exterminate its sinners from it. And pastors want to get in the pulpit and joke around. When we're supposed to preach that God right there. I don't get it, guys. I don't get it. I don't understand the, you know... Uh, junior high level preaching for adults in the church. I can't stand it because you don't mess with God. You don't play with God. This is a God that is going to destroy the cosmos one day. And we're joking around and we're using the slogans from the culture to try to get a rise out of the people in the church. What's wrong with us? Where are the prophets in the pulpit? who will eat the book even if it's bitter in your stomach. That's why you must prophesy, John was told. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. You scared yet? You should be. And if you're not, how dare you not? Heaven and hell, that's all God's got. I cannot alert you with anything other than hell, destruction, judgment. And it's not because 
you know, somewhere along the, the lines in evangelical, evangelical, we came up with this really blasphemous phrase, whatever you ought not to be is you ought not to be a hellfire and brimstone preacher. Oh, you don't want to be that. Tell that to Isaiah. Tell that to Paul. Tell that to John. Tell that to Jesus. I don't get it. I, people think, man, that was, you know, I've at times heard people come and they give me a compliment on a sermon and say, man, that was heavy. I, man, that was really good. And I'm just thinking in my mind, I feel completely lukewarm. Like, I feel like I did it no justice whatsoever. I mean, today I'll get down and probably the minute I step down, I'll be depressed I didn't preach it hard enough. Because it's worthy of it. Look at, the, look at what we're talking about. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for its iniquity. I will put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold, mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of His burning anger. What is that day? Paul is telling us that day is none other than the second coming of Jesus Christ. That is the day of the Lord. Let's pray for our family right now. Let's pray for our friends. Let's pray for people we know are not saved, that they're in darkness. They're sleeping. They're not awake. They're not in the light. They're not ready for this. Let's pray for that. Father, I know so many unsaved people and I confess to you that it doesn't break my heart enough to know where they are, to know what condition they're in, to know that as awful and terrible as the day of the Lord is, they're not ready. They don't fear it. As, as Paul says in Romans 3, they have no fear of God in their eyes. And we say, oh God, put the fear in our eyes for them. So that we can warn them. So that we can plead with them, beg with them, and weep before them if we must. Father, we pray that you would give us that kind of eschatology. Give us that kind of eschatology. Eschatology that moves us within not just tantalizes us in our mind, but makes us more empathetic, more broken for those around us that are not ready, like those who stood standing outside of the ark, mocking, right before the rain fell. Help us, Lord. Help us like Noah to be a preacher of righteousness, to stand up in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation and to tell the truth even if it might be sweet in our mouth but bitter in our stomach. Help us to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's